it's disappointing. It's really, and if I were a constituent in one of these places where the member of Congress was calling me a paid protester, I would be offended and angry because they represent, they, they represent me and they're completely dismissing me as a paid protester rather than listening to what I have to say. Hello, welcome to The Resistors, a new podcast where we talk to all the people trying to save us from Donald Trump. I'm your host, Chris Vaith. On today's show, we get to sit down with Angel Padilla. Angel is the policy director of Indivisible and one of its original founders. Before that, he worked at the National Immigration Law Center and on Capitol Hill as a congressional staffer. Soon after the election of Donald Trump, Indivisible came seemingly out of nowhere to help us resist. They're kind of like your social studies teacher on steroids, helping you brush up on Civics 101 and then get out there and do something. Angel sat down with us during a very busy time to tell us how they got started where things stand, and what the future holds. After you listen to this conversation, you should also really check out the Indivisible Guide if you haven't already. It makes for some seriously mesmerizing reading and will tell you pretty much everything you need to know about managing all this craziness. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Angel Padilla. Angel, it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to The Resistors. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. The story of Indivisible Start has already become something of a legend. Can you tell us about that fateful Google Doc uh, that launched all your efforts? Yeah, so this was now, I think, five, about five months ago when we published this document, uh, The Indivisible Guide. Basically, it was a group of congressional staffers, former congressional staffers, who, after the November 8th election, were trying to figure out what we could do. We were upset, we were angry, we were sad, a lot of emotions, and uh, we realized that there was something that we did know, and that was Congress, and we had seen how um, local congressional advocacy could change policy outcomes in Washington. Um, we modeled this guide after what we saw the Tea Party do back in 2009, 2010, 2011, and this guide basically is a blueprint, a, a roadmap to how you can use uh, local advocacy to stop the momentum of, of an administration. Um, we basically took all of the useful strategies and tactics from the Tea Party and abandoned all those really terrible things that we remember, like Tea Partiers screaming and yelling and spitting on people. Um, and, and so we put this into a guide. We published it in, in December. Uh, it was mid December when we published it and it was a Google doc with a bunch of errors on it. It wasn't pretty and shared it with a few of our friends. And from there it just kind of went, went viral and it got, I think, I think the moment when we realized that it was going to go pretty far is, or it was going to get read by a lot of people is when, uh, Robert Reich tweeted it out and that basically, put us on the map. Um, and then after that, we got a ton of, uh, of volunteers who were like, Hey, uh, I'm a graphic designer. How about I turn your ugly guide into something that people want to read? That looks nice to read. Um, and then other volunteers who were like, Hey, I'm a web designer. How about I put this online for you so people can access it, uh, in, you know, more easily. Uh, and that's kind of how it started. And I want to read just a, a few top lines from the Indivisible Guide, which really is quite poetic. So the guide does say it's all about re-election, re-election, re-election. Uh, there's a great list of what a member of Congress cares about and what they really don't care about. Uh, it covers tactics, big and small, from where to find your member of Congress to how to keep a strong grip on the microphone when a staffer tries to grab it from you at a town hall. And uh, perhaps my favorite line is the closing one, which says, good luck, we will win. Mm -hmm. um, 
Were you surprised at the reaction to the guide? So yes and no. Um, when so originally when we published the guide, there were only three names on the on the guide, even though there were you know I think somewhere between twenty five and thirty people who worked on the, the the first draft, and that's just because a lot of those people who worked on it were still working in government or there was some reason why they were you know afraid to put their name on a document that was at, openly resisting Trump, the, the incoming president. Um, and so I was, when I put my name on it, I mean, I wasn't, I was happy to put my name on it, but I didn't think it was going to go, it was going to, um, be received the way that it was and it was going to blow up the way that it did. Um, and so I was surprised what, what, what isn't surprising, what wasn't surprising is something that I think you get from reading that document and something that I think I, I always got from that document was that there is this promise in it that even though we're not in an ideal place, even though we don't control government, even though the the White House is being controlled by Donald Trump, even though we're in that terrible, terrible position, there is some hope. There's a promise of hope in that document that we can win if we resist, if we work together, if we realize that it's not about my issue versus your issue. It's about how we work together to resist this overall destructive and harmful Trump agenda. Yeah, I wonder if you've heard from members around the country about the the psychic impact of reading this document, which when I saw it for the first time, I, I thought to myself, yeah, that's the secret sauce. Uh, it, it must be incredibly empowering to find a, a simple, clear breakdown of how this stuff works and how we can impact it for someone who's jumping into politics for the first time. Yeah, and that's the a lot of those first emails that, you know, we posted the guide, I think it was like a Wednesday, and then by the next morning, we had hundreds and hundreds of emails from people all over the country who had said either, you know, we love the guide or, hey, thank you. This is the first time we had a lot of those were like, thank you. This is the first time where I felt hope again. Like that's like they got that from that guide. Um, and I think it's it, it is a simple formula. I mean, um, I'm, we never say that we're going to win every fight because we're not. We don't control government. But we can stop some of the really, really terrible, harmful things. And we've already seen that start to happen. Um, Congress is a big black box and people just don't understand it. And our goal was to make it a little bit easier for folks to one understand and then to, to engage locally where it matters most. I think a lot of people had this and some still do this, this, this impression that you have to come to Washington DC to make an impact that you have to travel and join the rally here at the Capitol to make an impact. And that's not true. You can be more effective if you're acting locally when your member of Congress is back at home in town halls, district office visits, phone calls, all of those things matter. And we've seen how effective they can be. And we've already seen some successes this year. You had mentioned the Tea Party. Your time on the Hill corresponded with their ascent. And I'm curious about what you learned about their strategic choices and, and how you uh, adapted them to Indivisible. Yeah, so um, that's exactly right. We modeled this um, this organization or this this guide on what we saw the Tea Party do back in, you know, it started in 2009. Um, they did a lot of things that we don't agree with that, you know, that were really, really awful. I mean, they said and did some really nasty things. The, the, the few things, though, that they did do right was that they focus locally. Um, and then also, as importantly, is they focus on an entirely defensive strategy. Um, and what that means is they realized that they couldn't set the agenda. They couldn't push bills that they wanted through Congress. What they could do was say no. And that's what they did. And that's why they, the Republican Party became known as the party of no, because this is the strategy that they took. And that was, you know, it's easier. It's much easier to say no 
um, whatever is on the table. And that's what they did. And they were effective at slowing down the process. And that's one of the strategies that we think uh, will be most helpful in this Trump era. Um, there are a lot of groups, a lot of people out there that care about a number of issues. It, it might be immigration, it might be healthcare, it might be the environment. But, you know, Congress only really focuses on one or two things at a given moment in time. And so if we all stick together and focus on those issues and, and we stick together in this posture of, of defense, uh, we will be more effective than if we fracture. Does this then forestall the ability to promote a, a positive progressive vision of society or are, are you able to do it even within the defensive posture? So it's, it's one of the drawbacks of this strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, I think our position is that we don't have the power. We're not in the, in the position where we can set the agenda, where we can push affirmative bills. So, you know, our best thing to do, the best thing that we can do to stop the awful things from happening is to say no. I imagine you have a vision of how that might change in two years or four years. Yeah. And so this is, it's an interesting question because, I mean, I think given all the stuff, the things that we've already seen from the beginning, right? It was the Muslim ban. It was uh, taking people's healthcare away. Um, it's the deregulation. It's across the board, the destruction that we've already seen and people are upset. Um, and that does put us in a better position to take away the house in 2018 from Republicans. Um, and so the, then the question is, how do we adjust? Um, it definitely opens up new opportunities for us if we, if Democrats control the house. But um, this is a similar question that we get when we say, well, what happens if Trump gets impeached? Do you change the strategy? Well, for us, the bottom line is if the, if the issue on the table, if the piece if the legislation that is being considered is this harmful bill we're going to oppose. If it's actually a progressive bill that we would like, we're not going to oppose. I mean, it's we want to stick to our values, whoever's in, in power. You had local groups forming around the country under the indivisible banner almost immediately when the guide was published. Can you tell us about the groups? Yeah, so we have about 6,000 groups all over the country. We have at least two in every congressional district. So it's not just, you know, the the big metropolitan areas on the East Coast. It's, it's everywhere in the country. It's ev at least two in every congressional district. And we have an average of 13 groups in every congressional district. So we are everywhere. Um, and, and you're right. They started forming almost immediately after the guide was posted. We did not ask for anyone to, to, to you know, use the indivisible name when they formed groups. But a lot of them did. And then it kind of took off. Um, and they vary in the types of groups they are. They, some of them are, you know, seriously like 2,000 people strong and others are 25 people. Um, but it's incredible to see. Some of them have committees and have leadership uh, and they have their own kind of structures and others are, are more informal. Um, and that's great. I mean, the, the variety of the groups is what makes them so, um, so important because when they go down, they have a different uh, approach just to the advocacy. Um, but um, it's, it's, uh, it's also um, watching all of these groups do this work. And again, we don't direct anyone to do anything. It's because they're so passionate about these issues. Um, it's what's making a difference. And so it's really inspiring to see. There are some places like in California, the Bay Area, where there are, I think we have over 50 groups in Nancy Pelosi's district, which would make sense. I mean, it's the Bay Area, the progressives. Um, and then we have some, some groups in like really, really red conservative districts um, and they're out there and they're active. Um, and there's something for them to do in each of these places. If it's, if it's, if you're in a really blue district, well, the chances are that your member, even if they're a Democrat are not taking the positions on every issue that they should be taking. 
um, the, the, the benefit of having these groups in these blue districts is that they really make sure that they hold the, the, the fire to the feet of these members. They make sure that they are voting the right way and that they're not negotiating on things that we, they, they shouldn't be negotiating on. Um, and then in the red districts, it's the opposite. It's making sure that they realize that if they take a bad vote, if this member or the senator takes a bad vote, they're going to hear about it and they're going to, it's going to get remembered uh, at the next election. And what are some of the creative things that you've seen uh, local groups do that might be replicated or so unique that they'll never, they'll never be replicated again? Yeah, so actually one of my favorite ones is, and I haven't seen this since, but it was maybe the first like couple weeks that, that um, after we, we you know, formed as an organization, um, someone went to Nancy Pelosi's district office with uh, a spine that they had created, and they were delivering a spine to Nancy Pelosi. Um, and, and that was, I mean, that's the only time I've seen that, uh, other things that we see a lot of are, you know, recently a lot of die-ins where, where groups, uh, are going down to, to town halls or, or district offices and they're having these like mock die-ins where they all, you know, they, a lot of them just like lay down on the floor. Others have tombstones that say their names and their date, uh, you know, their age or whatever. And basically calling out Republicans who voted for the, the ACA repeal bill in the house for basically voting for people to die because as the CBO has already found, you know, it's, um, this bill, if it ever becomes law would lead to the deaths of between 22 and 44,000 people a year because of lack of insurance. So it really is in a lot of ways, a death bill for, for a lot of people. Um, so we're, we're seeing those die-ins, um, and then a lot of just like creative stuff. I mean, I know, uh, people who are, um, they, you know, hand delivering special things based on like, if there's a, if it's like mother's day, they'll deliver mother's day cards to members and ask them to like protect mothers or something. Um, a lot of, a lot of things like, like that. And, and also the, the empty chair town halls that we've seen all over the country. And this is, these are town halls where the member just to, does not show up. And so constituents have a town hall without them. And we saw one town hall where they brought a live chicken and they had the live chicken on stage as the representing the member. And you do have a focus on, on Congress for good reason. Um, but are you also seeing some local groups take on more than congressional advocacy? Yeah. Um, um, we are, and that's a good thing. We, our focus has always been congressional advocacy. That's what we know. Um, but these groups, they're active and they're mobilized and they are eager to do work and to, influence policy and so a lot of them are are engaging on you know in state and local work which is great i mean we'd love to see those groups uh you know getting together prioritizing their issues and then trying to make a difference at the local and state level um we're not actively directing groups into that area we're glad to see it but it's just not our area of expertise and then also um what matters in state in states is really the local groups that understand the local politics and so we definitely don't want to step on any toes locally, um, but we are seeing that. The other question that we get a lot of is, you know, how much should they be doing in terms of administrative advocacy? So, you know, lobbying different departments or agencies on regulations uh, or different things that come out. Um, that's, again, an area that we're not getting into directly. Our position is that Congress can do, has the power to change the laws, including if there's a, regu- a bad regulation then Congress can step in and undo those kinds of regulations by passing a, a law. So we always try to have a congressional hook on on the issues that we're dealing with. And that started with the Muslim and refugee ban. Um, 
uh, that's that was an executive order. It's, it wasn't through Congress, but our response was, well, Congress seeing this executive overreach should step in. And so that's why we pressured senators and members to take action on that issue. Uh, the issues that are on the front burner for indivisible include the Muslim ban, health care and so forth. I'm curious which issues are most pressing and also where does Russia, the Trump Russia ties fit in? I wonder if if a lot of the local organizers and members of communities are more concerned about the bread and butter issues and whether the Russia news that we're reading in the national press is of such concern locally. So the indications that we've gotten from local groups is that it definitely is. Um, the the one that was cl- uh, so from the very beginning we knew that ACA was going to be the top priority. Um, I remember having a conversation with Ezra and Leah before we even became an organization, and it was about how we had to prioritize the ACA because of a number of reasons. One is that so many people were going to be harmed if they repealed the ACA. So many, like millions of people were going to be harmed. Um, it was also about political capital. If if Republicans and Donald Trump wanted to repeal the ACA and it was, we thought we could stop them and we, th- we still think we can stop them. But more importantly, the longer, like they have to waste political capital trying to get that done. It keeps them from doing other harmful things. So that's why we focus on the ACA. Um, the other, and also, I mean, from our groups, what we heard immediately was this visceral response about wanting to keep their healthcare. Everyone, everyone knows how important healthcare is, and having an administration trying to take that away from them produces immediate powerful backlash. And we saw that in town halls, and so that was clearly a priority for our groups from the beginning. I'm really, really proud of where we are on healthcare, and I know that we lost that vote in the House. Um, and there was a, a narrative that came out immediately afterwards about how the, the left and the, and the movement kind of fell asleep at the wheel at the last minute and let this go through. And I completely disagree with that. Back in January and February, no one was thinking about the House. No one was talking about uh, lobbying members of Congress in the House. It was all a Senate fight. And it wasn't until these groups started, you know, pressuring their members of Congress that there, we, we basically created a, a fight in the House um, when, where there wasn't supposed to be a fight in the House. So I'm proud that even though we lost that vote, it was in May when it should have been something that Republicans got through easily back in January. They were supposed to have a bill, a repeal bill on the president's desk on day one. And it took them, you know, months to do it. They still have to get to the, to the Senate and then make those changes and, and reconcile that with the, with the House. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of, of where, we, where we are. Um, that being said, I mean, the fact that it's still on the table, it should make everyone nervous. I mean, um, this is people, people's lives are basically at stake here and Republicans are basically carrying water for Donald Trump so that he can, you know, score a few political points at the expense of their own constituents. It's insane that some members of Congress are voting are voting to take away their own constituents' health care, are voting to harm their own constituents in order, you know, they're choosing party party over, over the, the welfare of their constituents. And one of the other things that we saw was the Russia the Russia um, interfering with our elections and possible collusion with the, the Trump administration. Also an immediate powerful backlash on this. And I think it's because they're both, they both sort of get at the heart of what we think of as like things that we need to live a successful life, right? So one of, everyone needs healthcare and I think everyone understands it. We all know someone that's gotten sick and so it's like a visceral response. But then also on the Russia thing, it's like an attack to our democracy. It's an attack to our American institutions. And I think regardless of party, I think people understand how serious this is. 
obviously the you know the the left has has really been pushing this because of you know a lack of a backbone from some of the republicans but um but i mean i think people understand they see when there's something wrong they see possible collusion interference corruption um and now obstruction of justice and that matters to people indivisible has also been very clear in calling out trump's racism misogyny xenophobia and you previously worked for a national immigrant rights group and i wonder how indivisible is addressing anti-immigrant sentiment in particular especially in light of the fact that you have so many local groups uh, probably building bridges that may not be happening otherwise from the very beginning also immigration was and continues to be an organizational priority um when when Donald Trump got elected, the first reaction was, okay, so who are the people who are going to be most harmed? Who are the people who are going to be at most risk? And it was clear that it was probably going to be immigrants. We knew that that's what he campaigned on. And we knew that the first thing when he announced his candidacy was that he talked about this, his, his, um, you know, his border wall and he stuck with it during the entire campaign. It's still one of the proposals that he wants Congress to fund. Um, so we knew, we knew that it was going to be a priority. And we've been engaging from the very beginning. We've, put out materials and documents for our, for the groups, for our indivisible groups so that they know, you know, what the issue is, what it means and how they can be allies to immigrants uh, locally. We also worked pretty, uh, we pushed back immediately on the Muslim and refugee ban. And that also is one of those issues where people immediately, there was an immediate backlash and it was amazing to see. And we got that same, that same response from, from our groups all over the country. We saw people going to the airports all over the country. But we also had groups that were asking us, like, what else can we do? What can we be asking our members of Congress to do? And which is, you know, that's the role that we see for ourselves. Like whenever there's an issue like that, we want to make sure that we can give our groups the tools and the resources to, to make, to do that advocacy at the local level with their members of Congress. There's probably a lot of resistance to your resistance, especially with the ugliness of today's discourse on Twitter and in real life. How does Indivisible navigate the pushback and I'm thinking coming even from the highest levels at the White House in its slander multiple times of so-called paid protesters. Yeah, that's the I mean, it's it's an easy it's an easy response. Um, if you're, you know, in the White House or if you're a Republican in Congress, you just, you know, call all these these constituents pro, um, paid protesters, um, outside agitators, whatever. You know, we got, you know, some people were saying that they were being bussed in, that these, these constituents were being bussed in from out of the city or out of the state to protest, which is all a lie. Um, and I honestly don't think that those members of Congress actually believe it. And it's not, you know, and they're the ones who are going to see the repercussions of this in 2018 when these same people that they're dismissing and denigrating are, are going to go to the polls. And we're hoping that it translates into, you know, some of these Republicans losing their seats, but, um, it's disappointing. It's really, and if I were a constituent in one of these places where the member of Congress was calling me a paid protester, I would be offended and angry because they represent, they, they represent me and they're completely dismissing me as a paid protester rather than listening to what I have to say. I'm sure some members of Congress think that they figured out indivisible. I have noticed a lot more telephonic town halls yeah. rather than uh, live in-person town halls. Yeah. So uh, they're these, we call them sham town halls um, and members of Congress. So I, I worked in a congressional office for a few years and something that I remember is that it wasn't very, is very predictable. There weren't a whole lot. It wasn't creative in a lot of ways, but it's, it's surprising to see how creative members of Congress can get when they're trying to dodge their constituents. 
Um, tele- telephonic town halls is one of them where they, you know, instead of facing their constituents, they hold this conference call where people can call in and the calls are screened. So constituents um, can't just ask a question. They have to have their question screened. Um, the member of Congress basically controls the narrative and the messaging. Um, and then constituents, if they have like a, a more provocative question or something that's going to push back on one of the answers, they just don't get an, they don't get a chance to, to chime in. So that's not a town hall. That's, that's an opportunity for a member of Congress to pretend to have a town hall and not really have a town hall. Um, other things that we've seen are members of Congress who have town halls, but they don't notify their constituents until like the day of, so people can't plan. Um, or they'll have their town hall at the far, in the far corner of their, their district. Um, and if it's remote, even better, you know, and so members, uh, so their constituents have trouble getting to those town halls. And so then they can say, I hosted two town halls during this recess, even though it was too far for people to get to. Um, so they're being creative at dodging their constituents and it, but, but constituents aren't like they're noticing, they know that, that this is why they're doing it. They know that, um, that it, even these sham town halls aren't good enough. They want a face-to-face with their member. And if they're not getting it, they're going to remember that. At the end of the day, it's whether or not the member or the senator is being responsive to their constituents. And in those cases, they are not. And, and I think people pick up pretty quickly that it's not even it's, it's worse than they're not being responsive. It's that they're actively avoiding, actively dodging, actively dismissing their concerns. Can you walk through how any member of Congress thinks and just kind of the psychology of be, holding that office? Yeah, so it's not, uh, it's entirely true that a member of Congress only cares about getting reelected. I mean, that's the top concern for them. What they want to make sure is that they have a job after two years. And we have elections for in the House every two years. And so uh, representatives are constantly campaigning. Um, and so what they care about is making sure they, do, they don't take a vote that's going to make it harder for them to get reelected in the next cycle. They care about whether or not the press back home is good or bad, and whether that's going to affect their chances to get reelected. Um, they basically want to take credit for as much as they can and avoid as many bad votes as uh, as possible and avoid any negative publicity as possible. So for that reason, for example, a lot of times members care more about their, their local press rather than the national press. I mean, everyone likes to get quoted in the national press, but the thing that their constituents are reading is probably going to be the local paper. So every, every congressional office has this where you have a, a staff person or an intern maybe who every morning goes through the, the daily clips. These are the news clips where um, every mention of that representative or that senator locally. And it's basically tr- just taking a check what, what people are talking about. Um, and it's, it's uh, a red flag, fire alarms if there's a bad story. Um, and so those are the things that matter to, to a member. Um, it's also... Fundraising. Fundraising is another thing that all these members and senators are constantly thinking about, which is interesting because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that we're not seeing as many town halls that we usually see and we're having all these sham town halls. But something that we're not seeing any less of are these fundraisers. So members of Congress are not making themselves available to constituents, but they are still making themselves available to fundraise. So that also is, you know, optics wise, that's, that's awful. And so I think groups, um, and we're trying to highlight that, and I think groups are taking notice. Uh, and those are the things that I think will matter. Members of Congress are really risk averse, right? And so, um, and I remember seeing this when I was on the Hill, which was whenever there was an issue where it wasn't clear cut, if it wasn't black and white, if there was some ambiguity, if there wasn't like a, a perfect answer, the, 
the default position was to do nothing. They're hoping to sit on the sidelines on really important issues, right? So the Muslim and refugee ban is, I think, a perfect example, a perfect example where it is so un-American and it is so, I mean, it's clearly unconstitutional. Yeah, I know it's still in the courts, but, you know, courts have ruled that it's unconstitutional. And so um, members of Congress should be out there speaking on this, but they're not because they're worried about, you know, it's to, to, they're worried about how their constituents might, might feel. And they're worried that if, if they go too far into one, any one direction, it's just going to upset the other uh, side of the, the equation. Um, and it's the same thing on the Russia, the Russia stuff. Um, so, you know, under normal circumstances, obstruction of justice, colluding with the foreign government, even conservative Republicans would be upset about it. But right now what we're seeing is a lot of them hoping that this goes away um, so that they don't have to, you know, go against their party. Um, it's it's unfortunate, but that's that's kind of the truth of the way that Congress works. The Indivisible Guide speaks of stiffening Democratic spines as much as weakening pro-Trump Republican resolve. And uh, I wonder how you would assess the stiffness of Democrat spines at the moment. Yeah, so that's a good point. So uh, I should be clear, we're, uh, I know I've been talking about Republicans and Democrats. We are uh, nonpartisan in that we will attack both Democrats and Republicans <laughs> if they take a bad vote or if they take a bad position. Um, and part of the strategy here is to make sure that Democrats aren't caving on these issues. What we were, one of, one of our immediate fears after November 8th was, oh God, so it's Senator Chuck Schumer is going to be in control of the Senate. That means he's going to go negotiate on all these things. And he's going to give in on all these things because he cares about negotiating and keeping um, Democrats in their, in their, in their seats. Um, but to his credit, for the most part, he's been a lot stronger on a lot of these issues than we expected him to be. Um, but I think that's because he's been hearing from constituents because he sees where the country is and where the, the base is. It's, it's the resistance that has empowered a lot of these Democrats to actually fight for progressive values. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier about the Nancy Pelosi spying. This is actually important to me because I grew up in California and, you know, seeing Senator Feinstein, you know, uh, there, it's, it's, it was incredible for me to see how, you know, a senator from the bluest state, the state that often loves to talk about how they will secede from the country because they're so progressive and they're so blue, um, not being, not leading the charge from the left. Um, and so that was really disappointing. And I think she's gotten a lot of pressure from her constituents. Um, and it, I think it is pushing these members into the right direction. Do you have plans for the midterm elections? Yeah. So that's a good question. Um, and you know, when we talk about the resisting the Trump agenda, there's probably no better way of resisting the Trump agenda than taking one of those levers away from him. Um, if we take back the house, that's a great way of resisting and stopping some of the really terrible things from, from becoming a reality. So we are, we, we do, you know, we've already seen this, um, local groups, when you organize locally, the way that these groups are, are organized, they don't stop at congressional advocacy. They don't stop at state and local. They also start to think about taking back seats. Um, and so we're already seeing that happen. And what's really amazing to see is that a lot of these groups have also, in the process of forming, they've developed new leaders. And those are the, the leaders that, you know, are now getting engaged and thinking about making a run for, for different seats. So that's definitely part of what we're thinking. And we're really, I mean, this is a great opportunity for us to, you know, in addition to, to you know, stopping the really terrible stuff, but also taking back control of at least the House in 2018. And I, I see that energy in exactly as you described. I do wonder, though, if you worry about burnout or that sense of fatigue that 
uh, I think a lot of people have, whether it's in their email inboxes or the suggestion every week or every yeah. couple of days to call their member of Congress. Uh, do you worry about that? Definitely. Um, a lot of these activists are new activists. A lot of the, our, mem- our members are people that have never done this before. And so we're worried, at least I'm worried, that, that they might you know, have this idea that if they go down to a town hall once or they make a few calls for a couple of weeks, that they'll see immediate change. And that's just not the way it works. Um, this, is a sustain- this requires a sustained effort. It's going to be a long-term process. But, but I think what's important is for them to recognize the victories that we've already seen um, and making sure that they understand them as victories. Um, and again, I talked about the ACA earlier. Um, the repeal bill in the House was, not, was, was supposed to happen immediately. There was not supposed to be any problem with, for Republicans to get it through. And so, I, you know, as people think about that vote when it actually got through the House, I think it's important for people not to think of that as a loss as much as, you know, this was a victory in and of itself. You know, you know, very disappointed that it, I, I get it. You know, I'm, I'm sad, too, that they got it through. But it's a win, you know. And in order to keep up the fight and the energy, people need to understand that those are wins. Another win was the um, special prosecutor, the, the special counsel um, that was just appointed to investigate the Russia uh, interference in 2016 elections that was also not supposed to happen you know but but it happened because of public pressure and so as long as we make sure that we celebrate those wins and and you know it'll help us stay motivated for the long-term effort that that's ahead of us and it really is tremendous the success that you've had in these first just few months of the administration and where you really changed the narrative and the policy impact so where do you go from here um, so I think one of our speaking actually to, to your point, you just, the question you just had about, about burnout, um, one of the organizational priorities for us now is making sure that our groups have everything they have to be sustainable. So making sure that they, uh, um, you know, understand if they want to become, if they need help with like developing like, you know, a press strategy that they have that. And if they have questions about how to keep their own members engaged, that we give them those resources. You know, I think for me that the goals are making the group sustainable and then doing a a better job of demystifying Congress, which is what our ultimate goal is. For those who have not yet plugged in, how would you suggest that they plug in and learn more about what you're doing? Our our website, you can find all of our resources. It's indivisibleguide.com. We also just launched a new website specifically on holding Republicans accountable for voting for the ACA repeal bill, and it's called paybackproject.org. We have a Facebook page, and we also have our our, t- our organizational Twitter handle, which is at Indivisible Team, um, and it's that's where you get your most up-to-date information. The Facebook Live events that you host from time to time seem pretty well attended. I think I've seen like 50,000 plus people on, on one of those. Yeah. And those are, um, again, a lot, because we're so new, we're only been around for five thousand five months. Um, we, uh, we're trying to figure out what's the best way of connecting with, with groups. And we got a good response from the Facebook live events. And so we're going to continue them. I think our plans to do them weekly. Um, and I think it's a good way for people to, you know, for us to, to, to express or convey the priorities for the week. Um, and yeah, one of those, we got lucky and Robert Reich tweeted out, uh, that we were holding one until we got a, you know, like 120,000 viewers or something, uh, at one time. So it was kind of cool. Well, Angel, we continue to see the fruits of your labor with each additional news cycle. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk with us and best of luck as you continue to fight the good fight. No, thanks. Um, it's a pleasure. 
that does it for this episode of the resistors thanks for listening and thanks so much to angel leah ezra and the whole indivisible team you can connect with them at indivisibleguide.com you can also listen to more episodes of the resistors on itunes soundcloud and stitcher and if you know someone who should be a guest on a future episode connect with us at the resistors.co